Okay, Pearl Harbor. Okay, 1941, December the 7th. It's a real event. I know there's a film. It's a real event. That then Japanese military launched a surprise attack on this American base. They killed lots of people. 2,400 people. 21 ships go down and 188 aircraft. It's a, it's, it's a major, major dent. And up until the US, up until then, the US were keeping out of the war. This brought them well and truly into it. And so that wound inflicted on the United States of America did injury, killed a lot of people. But the response finally ended in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, sorry, yeah, almost decimated those two cities. And so there was this injury caused, but the response almost, almost, well, according to what I'm trying to do with it here, it hit the head of the nation, didn't it? Uh, The Japanese army then caused the wound to the US base there, to the US situation, but their response with the dropping of these two nuclear weapons, the first time they're ever using combat, almost decimated the country. And I say that because of this verse here. I want to show you the next verse, if I may. Genesis 3.15 He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Do you see that illustrated in that little example there of, 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 a, of a wound? But the response being oh, fatal, as it were, and he was in the war. He began to turn the war around when the US got involved. And when those bombs were dropped, it almost sealed the end of the war. Here's our heading. Okay, oh, just before I come to it, let me just show you where we, this word we're going to look at today. It was on a video on YouTube, if you saw it, that I posted last night. That word there, proto-evangelium, is what we're looking at. It means the first gospel. Here's how we get it. It's two Greek words, protos first and euangelion, gospel, first gospel. If you ever hear that term, it's, it's a Greek word. It's from the Greek. It's an English word from the Greek, proto-evangelium. It can, it's pronounced differently depending on where you are. It just, it's two Greek words. First, gospel. It's the very first mention of the gospel. If anybody ever asks you, it's the it's number one exam paper question. Okay, uh, what's the proto? Where is the proto of Evangelium? Okay, where is it? Where's the very first mention of the gospel? And almost all, not every theologian, there is some discrepancy on this, like in many other areas. Almost all theologians agree this is a very first mention of the gospel. And I want to look at it with you uh, as this communion. This is a new mini-series. We have lots of mini-series, don't we? And you know why I do that, don't you? So you don't get bored. Seriously, it's just to keep the thing interesting. Uh, you know, I've got a very boring voice, people tell me. Uh, and I don't, I don't think that's been said. Uh, but it, it may be boring to you if, if, I, if you hear me every week preaching on the same topic. And so we just try and vary. This is a new mini-series for communion. Just Communion Sundays. And so today we're looking at the cross in Genesis 3.15. Our heading is, Satan wins a battle, but Christ wins the war. Okay? Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, okay, the serpent, snake, same thing, okay, it's what beguiled Adam and Eve. And here's the thing, I know 
we think it's Eve who's beguiled, but we imagine, don't we, Adam is having a place somewhere. He's with her. Almost certainly he's there. Okay? She seems to be the spokeswoman. Okay? So already something topsy-turvy has occurred in the garden because God appointed him as the leader. And, and we know that God appointed him as a leader. How do you know that? Yes, Sarah, you're on the ball today, aren't you? Spot on. That, that, that's, that's a theology running right through Scripture. The theology of the firstborn. It's why the firstborn is the head of the family. Okay? It's why Christ was said of Christ in Colossians. He is the firstborn of all creation. To be firstborn, to be first, is not accident in, in, in biblical terminology. He's the head of this family, but already who's the head of the family uh, in action by this state in, in Genesis 3? Eve, she's now the self-appointed spokeswoman for this family. Can you see? And the devil has targeted her. Okay, and as we're looking at the snake, the snake is not a supernatural creature. He's one of God's creatures. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals that the Lord God had made. So the first thing about this snake in the garden, he's nothing unique. He's not a supernatural creature. He's a snake. A pure, simple snake. But there's so something unique about this about snakes. Notice crafty there. What do we now, this is where again translation issues occur because this has come from the Hebrew into the into uh, 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 Australian English. Okay? Right? Crafty just means intelligence. So God has created snakes. They are incredibly, well, at least back then, they were incredibly intelligent creatures. We don't have issues with intelligent creatures, do we? I mean, we used to have a macaw, blue and gold macaw, incredibly intelligent creature, and so sophisticated, so devious. He knew exactly what he couldn't do in our house, which was chew the cables, okay? And so he would wait till we left the room, okay? And the minute we'd walk behind the kitchen door, he'd be over to the cables, have a good bite at them, and he'd be back on his seat as soon as we'd gone, pretending he hadn't even moved. What? Me? It wasn't me. I mean, it was an amazingly intelligent creature, okay? We're used to animals being intelligent. Snakes were made by God with, an, with a higher level of intelligence, it seems, than all of the other creatures that he made. Okay? We're not suggesting they end up like that now. The fall has altered a lot of things. But at least originally, uh, he was a very unique and clever creature. And this, this may explain why the devil uses a snake. Perhaps uses his intelligence uh, to give himself an advantage. And so God made him. And here's the thing about snakes. Is that music? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it does sound like an ice cream truck. Don't all run out, run out at once. And the other thing about snakes is, and this one in particular, he wasn't evil. We have to understand that. That this snake that beguiled Eve was not evil, and we know it wasn't evil because God made it. And what, is, what does that mean? He wasn't evil. Because thank you, Sarah. Yes. I want that pill you've had. <laughs> Seriously. Yes. 
And God saw all that he made, including that little snake, or how big, I don't know, how little it was. And God said it was good, which meant, I know good is like, good. But you have to understand God's use of terminology there. When he says good, it doesn't mean like, it's good. He means it's perfect. God made this snake good and perfect and super intelligent like he made all the other snakes. But something has occurred, and that's what we have to understand here. Something has occurred to this snake. The devil, whether he's possessed it or hijacked it or is manipulating it, we're not told. He's obviously chosen it for his intelligence, but the devil is somehow in cahoots with the most intelligent of God's creatures, the snake. He uses it somehow. You think if he's that clever, why would it be used? Maybe he had no power over it. We don't know. Okay, but he's been used. And this is what we're told in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, you will crawl on your belly and eat dust all of your life. Here's the other thing about snakes. Is when we read that, it's a curse, isn't it? What do we assume? What, how, how does it read naturally? That when God says to him, you know, after the fall, here's what I'm going to do. You're going to crawl on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. That sound seems to suggest what? Low. Yes, is it low? And something else? What, what, do we, what do we think about snakes before this event? Yes, we assume, don't we? Oh, it used to have, used to have legs, and now that it hasn't. And I want to suggest, friends, the theologians want to suggest to us uh, that we're not to see this as a punishment of transformation. As though he once had legs and now he's losing them. But rather, it, it's, it's grounding what's already in existence, what's already real, as a definite, eternal, forever reality. I think it's, it's, it's God's way of saying... Look, I made you to dwell in the dust. But now, that's going to be for you a relegation, an imprisonment, a judgment. What was once a natural thing for you will now be something that speaks of your loneliness and of your belonging in that state. I'll come back to that shortly. Back to Genesis 3.1. The serpent was more crafty, more intelligent than of all of God's creatures that the Lord God had made. And he made him, it seems, for the purpose of returning, or rather staying in his position. Here's what Calvin says. Just Look, this is in old language, and I'm sorry, I just didn't think about translating it into English or not. Modern English, when I added it, but see if you can understand it. This is one of the great theologians of our history. Uh, he's attached to the Reformation that we heard about from uh, Ben last week, one of the reformers. Here's what he says about the position of the snake, how we to understand it. Thou, the snake, a wretched and filthy animal, has dared to rise up against man, whom I appointed to the dominion of the whole world, as if truly thou, who art fixed to the earth, had any right to penetrate into heaven. Can you see what it's saying? It was as though the snake, in cahoots with the devil, was trying to rise above his station. God had given him the low station. He's trying to rise above it. Therefore, I now throw thee back again to the place whence thou was attempted to emerge. He's always in the dust. He never had legs. He always used to crawl on the ground. 
that thou mayest learn to be contented with thy lot and no more exalt thyself to a man's reproach and injury. Can you see what Calvin is, is saying about these verses? He's saying, we're not thinking they had legs. It was their position, formerly, but now it's their position as punishment to remind them that they're not to rise above their station. And can you see what God is doing here? Although the devil is behind this action, we're going to look at shortly, he's not ignoring the vehicle. Can you see that? That God is holding to account not just the devil behind the snake, but he's holding the snake to account. And I want to show you more of that now. He's holding the snake to account. You will crawl on your belly all the days of your life and eat the dust, or on your belly and eat the dust all the days of your life. The dust and the crawling. In Middle Eastern culture, this is a book written in the Middle East. Here's, to have dust on you is, is a lowly thing. I mean, we don't, I mean, here, I, know, I see people walk around without even sandals. And their feet get dirty, no one thinks anything of it. If you get dust on it, you just wipe it off, who cares? But in the Middle East, it's, it's a lowly position. Uh, to have dust on your feet, it, it, it speaks of, of poverty, especially because you can't have it clean. If you've got any wealth, as soon as you get into your abode, you get someone to clean it for you. To have dust is a low, something of low regard. It's why in 1, John 1, 27, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says these words, He is the one who comes after me, the Thongs of whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. He's saying it's the lowliest position in the world to touch somebody's feet. Okay? To touch that dust. It's a symbol of loneliness. And Jesus is that great, and I am that small, that I'm not small enough to touch his feet. I'm not small enough to be humiliated in that way. And so the, the, the serpent's relegation to dust, as it were, pictures the utter lowliness of his position. Moreover, that dust and the eating of dust is a picture of humiliating defeat. Here's what Isaiah says. Isaiah Isaiah 65, uh, talking about the future. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. But dust will be the serpent's food. Can you see he speaks of defeat? Because by the end of the world, uh, evil has been defeated. And Micah says something similar. Nations will rise, nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their powers. They will lay their hands on their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. So can you see the picture that God is pronouncing on the devil? It's a picture of humiliation. It's a picture of defeat. A picture of humiliation and defeat. So this snake... It's forever, and we meant to look at it like that. When we see a snake, it's pictured in humiliation and defeat. The devil, well, sorry, the serpent, the snake rather, will forever give a picture of humiliation and defeat. Now, God is speaking both to the snake and to the devil, is what we're suggesting here. So to the snake, it'll be forever crawling in the dust. To the devil, here's the first pronouncement of the gospel. You, uh, going back to Micah, they will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. And then Revelation 20.10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. 
the devil for his part will forever suffer defeat, humiliation. And the thing about it, this burning, the lake of burning sulfur, the reason we say uh, suffering and eternity and hell are eternal rather, is that it's an ongoing forever reminder to Satan of his demise and what he's brought on the human race. That he will forever suffer for the, what he's done to Adam and Eve and to the rest of the world. So the snake suffers in humiliation, the devil suffers ultimately in being banished to the lake of fire. Verse 15 gives a bit more explanation to verse 14. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. So we'll deal with the snake first. So for the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman. The woman speaking of humanity, the, the, the serpent there. Here's what an internet source that I found says about snakes. Snakes are probably the most misunderstood and most illogically feared creatures on the planet. People have an instinct, instinctual fear of snakes that stems back for thousands of years. It's interesting, it's a non-Christian site. It does stem back thousands of years. It stems all the way back to the garden. I don't know what you think of snakes. I can't stand the things. Seriously, of all the creatures in the world, I can't stand snakes. You love them. Some people do love them. Well, there you go. You have lots of them. But generally, yes, generally, as this source said, there's an instinctive, unnatural fear. And it's coming from Genesis. It's always saying that God is pronouncing, of all the creatures on this planet, he's pronouncing this divide between snakes and humans, whereby the most natural thing throughout the world, except in some cases... Okay. Well, there you go. And there's nothing to fear, is there? There's nothing to fear. I know. And I think that's the point here, Sarah. It's unnatural. But what we're suggesting is God has pronounced that on that, that of all of God's creatures, there will be an instinctive alienation between snakes and humanity. That's the snake's part. The devil's part is similar. That there's a natural repulsion and fear for all things evil. Unless you're really weird. We have an instinctive fear of anything devilish. So all of, all of God's creatures, the snake, there's an instinctive fear. And, and the other God's creature, remember, we, have, we forget that Satan is God's creature. He was the chief angel. And what God's pronouncing in the garden here, that from this point on, that there will be a, an instinctive fear divide between this angel and the rest of God's creation. And so there'll be an enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And it goes a bit further. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So again, the snake first. Remember, God is dealing with both things here simultaneously. Again, another quote from the internet on snakes is from Wikipedia. Snakes do not ordinarily prey on humans, unless startled or injured. Most snakes prefer to avoid contact and will not attack humans. It's why I do something really crazy. Every time I put our bins out on a Sunday night, not now that the summer's coming, in the winter it's always dark, I always leave it to the last minute. 
I, 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 I stand bizarre. Someone told me to do it. I, I stamp my feet because he's back in the bush in the back of our garden. Okay? Because I know, I know this. I might not know a lot of things, but I know this, that, that he's going to be more afraid of me than I am of him. And if he hears me coming, he's bound to flee. And so ordinarily, snakes don't injure. Okay? But when they do, but the point is, is that snakes generally do far less harm to humans than humans do to snakes. And, and, and what we're suggesting is this, is that that's coming straight from Genesis. That the consequence for the snake is that in, the, in their relationship to humans, that they'll, they'll always come out worst off. It's almost, I remember, uh, look, I, I, was, I was born in Bangladesh, I grew up in the UK. When I was 19, I went back to Bangladesh for a, for a, for a while because my family wanted to expose me to my uh, beginnings. And so I used to do a lot of fishing. Uh, I think I got a picture here. This is not me on this picture, but it's similar to this. Uh, it's a form of fishing where you take a net, a bit like a badminton net, that's not a proper picture, uh, and you stretch it across uh, just a waterway. And when the fish are swimming by, they get stuck in there. The gills get stuck in there and you've got fish. Okay? And when we used to go back uh, and collect this, I mean, I, I was just obviously just visiting the country, so I used to watch my uncles do it. They used to pull up the net and invariably, as well as fish, there'd be snakes. And what would they do to the snakes? Kill them. Kill them. Do they eat them too? No, no, fortunately, no, no, no snake eating there. That killed them. And so one of the things that Genesis 3 may be saying about snakes is that in their relationships with humans from this point on, they will always come off worse. And it is the case. As many, as, many people as, as there are killed by snakes, it's incomparable to the figure of snake killed by humans. Uh, just instinctively, without even any thought. Uh, I know if I saw one in my garden, my instinct would be, it wouldn't be to stroke it. And it wouldn't even, look, I know this sounds awful, it wouldn't even be scared away. I'd probably try and do what I... The horrible thing to it. Don't tell the NSP, RSPCA. Uh, okay? Uh, it's just instinctive. So for the snake, it comes off worse. Now for Satan. So remember, God is speaking both to the snake and to Satan. And here's the proto-evangelium. The term here, offspring, is singular. It's gender neutral for a start. And it's singular, not plural. And so verse 15 reads something like this, theologians say. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, singular, and hers, singular. He, singular, will crush your head, singular, and you, singular, will strike his heel, singular. It's very important. So beyond what it's saying superficially to the snake and humans, that's just a superficial judgment what it's saying to Satan beyond is very, very important. Can you see what the singular language is doing to that text? What's it doing? Just think of, what is that doing? If you're thinking of the devil, there it is, thank you. What is that singular language doing to that whole text? It's saying, it's, 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 you're talking, you, yes, it's emphasising that this is about two entities. Not multiple, not the whole of the human race, okay? This is speaking about two entities. And this is where we get the proto-evangelium from, uh, uh, the cross of Christ. One is going to do some injury to the other, 
and the other is going to do catastrophic, fatal injury to the other. Can you see? This is, this is how we get a picture of the gospel. Is the offspring, the, the, the one who is a victor, is an offspring of the woman. We know that to be Jesus. We know Jesus came from our line. It's why we say it points to it. And the other is, is a picture of whatever's possessed this poor snake and brought all this judgment both on the snake and on himself. What it seems to be suggesting is that there's going to be a battle between two entities. It's significant enough for Genesis to record it. It's related to the fall. Can you see how we get into the cross? It's significant enough for Genesis to relate it. It's related to the fall because he's at the time of the fall. And he's speaking about a victory coming out of this situation. I know there's not a lot to go on. And we're not suggesting that all of the gospel is there, but it's the first glimpse, okay? The first spark in utter darkness. This is an utter dark situation. It's the worst day of human history. It's the fall of the whole, not just of the whole human race, it's the fall of the whole universe. Every single object in space is affected by this. On this day, God says that there's going to be a war coming between two entities. One is related to whatever's possessed this snake, and the other is an unknown figure from a woman, a singular figure. The two will enter combat, and the force behind this snake will be mortally wounded. And when you overlay that, no biblical... No biblical writer has connected Genesis 3.15. It's the thing we have to understand with this glimpse. No biblical writer has connected this. So there's no New Testament letter that says Genesis 3.15 speaks about the gospel. It's theologians, and it's early as the second century, theologians are connecting it. And you can see the connection, I hope. Look, if I can just spell it out for you, it's a bit like this. So from the moment that Jesus was born, he was at war with Satan. It began then. What was the very first missile that he launched at him? <coughs> yes, thank you. He tried to decimate him at his, uh, shortly after his birth. It's, it's where we get it. You know, we think that the wise men came when Jesus was born. They came when he was about two or three years old. Herod tried to kill Jesus when he was two or three years old. It's why they, that's the age range of the babies they try and kill. Okay? So, so, so the very first assault is, is then. And then throughout his ministry, he perpetually tried to have him assassinated over and over and over again. And every time Jesus managed to get away, finally, the arena where this battle has taken place, the incarnation, ends up with a cross. And now it seems that finally, Satan, what we have to understand, Satan wasn't trying to bruise Jesus' heel. He was trying to inflict a mortal wound. And Satan had assumed, you'd have to believe, wouldn't you, You'd have to assume that he thought he'd won on the cross. It's an assumption is it, that he thought he'd defeated God's son. He took on God's best and he defeated him. He'd assume that. And so, but what, 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 turns, what transpires is Jesus is resurrected, but not just that, before the resurrection. What transpires is that during what looked like a defeat... It was a victory, and it was a victory. Let me ask you why, just, just, just to make sure you haven't fallen asleep. Why was it a victory? What, what was Jesus doing on the cross that demonstrated it wasn't, a vic- it wasn't a victory for Satan? 
What was he doing on the cross? Thank you, Jerry. That's what we say it's a victory. On the cross, it looked like victory for the devil, but actually, Jesus was taken upon himself the sins of the world. He was being abandoned by his father. Can you see all the reason that it looked like defeat? Okay, If Satan had any idea, we don't know what he had an idea of, if he had any idea that Jesus had become sin for us, then he must have been gloating in the fact when, when the father said of Jesus, uh, no, when, no, when, rather when Jesus cries out, because of his realisation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That must have sounded like to the devil as... That was it! He just got his father to turn against him. He'd won! He'd, he had done... You have to understand what he'd done here. Satan had, in his own, from his own perspective, done what was impossible. We, talk, we talked earlier about splitting the atom... That was impossible before Einstein and the other scientists who were involved in all of that, okay? That was impossible, it was thought. And then humanity split the atom and and generated immense amounts of energy. It was impossible to dissect the Trinity. The devil seemingly had the victory. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the end! If you can dismantle the Trinity, you have defeated God. Do you see? This was his hour of victory. But, and this is what Genesis is pointing to. This is what we say it's related. It turned out it was just a flesh word. There's a comedy series in Britain, and I'm not advocating. It's a great one to watch, necessarily. Uh, but Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You know, the, you'll know the scene, won't you? I, I, only, I was only a child when I watched it. I can only remember it vaguely. Where this soldier uh, is in some kind of combat situation and he's losing his limbs one by one. And I think he gets down to, I don't know how many limbs he's got left. Yeah, that, 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 that's the background. Yeah, the, uh, oh, he's got no limbs left. And then somebody says something to him. And he asks him how he is or something. And doesn't he respond by saying, it's okay, it's only a flesh wound. He just wants to keep oh, fighting. Yeah, he wants to keep fighting. So every time he gets a limb cut off. No, no, it's just a flesh wound. Just a flesh wound, just a flesh wound. And he's got no limbs left. And, and the knight's like, just let me pass. <laughs> and he won't do it. That's right, I remember now. Yeah, thank you. Okay. However injured the Christ looks on the cross, However fatal he may appear, however victorious, the splitting of God the Son and God the Father is only a flesh wound. Jesus is resurrected. But way before that, Jesus makes peace between all of sinful humanity that God loves and God. He accomplishes a, a, a word that's difficult to translate into English, propitiation. Doesn't we know what that word means? It's in Romans 3, uh, and God set forth him as a propitiation through his blood. Does anybody know what that word means? Because it's, it's, it's an it's a untrendy word. It's, it's, a trend, it's a word some theologians don't like. Does anybody know what it means, propitiation? It means... 
it's, it's, it's taken from ancient paganism. If, if your God was angry and wasn't sending you rain, you propitiated him. How did you propitiate him? Sacrifice. You sacrificed to him. Sometimes your kids. It may have been crops or whatever it may have been. It was a way of averting the wrath of the deities. You can see why some theologians or some Christians won't even like it. Because we don't like to think that God ever gets angry because he's such a nice, nice God, isn't he? Romans says, Jesus' blood, and God's established it, propitiated his wrath. God was angry enough to destroy us. The cross subdued his wrath. Here's a sad reality. If you read Romans 1, then you're left with a mystery. Because Romans 1 says, all of God's wrath is being poured out on humanity. So the question you need to ask this is, then what does Romans 3 mean? If Romans 1 talks about ongoing wrath of God towards humanity, it's what Romans 1 says, all of God's wrath has been poured out against humanity. What does Romans 3, 23 or 25 mean when he says, God set him forth as a propitiation through his blood. Who's, who's been spared of wrath? Think about it. Who has been spared of wrath? And this is why faith is so important. Let me ask you, answer if you can think about it at least. If Romans 1 is telling us that God's wrath is still active, and Romans 3 is telling us God's wrath has been subdued, who is still suffering God's wrath? All of on regenerate creation and this is something we have to understand friends that it's not trendy it's not trendy that the only beings who are no longer subject to the wrath of God are the beings who respond to Jesus in faith if you stand outside of Jesus his blood is not your purpose What's the word? I've lost the word. No. Propitiation, thank you. His blood is not propitiating your sins, which means if we walk out there not under the blood of Jesus, you are under God's wrath. I wonder if you ever understood that. Romans 1, you're under God's wrath. That's why bad things happen. That's why the world is falling apart. That's why if we left the news on 24-7, you're going to be able to cope. It's awful. It's because God's wrath is still active because it's only been propitiated against all who put their faith in Jesus. Have you ever wondered how God can send anybody to hell? If, here's the thing, if Jesus' blood had propitiated every single sin of every single human, on what basis would God send anybody to hell? You have to think about that. If God, Jesus' blood, really propitiated all of humanity, how can he send anybody to hell? And you can't say, oh, he sends them to hell because they don't believe in him, therefore Jesus didn't die for every sin, did he? Because a sin of unbelief is a sin, and if Jesus died for every sin, which is why I say to you, there's nothing that you can do 
to make God at odds with you. Because his blood propitiated everything you'll ever do, think or say. The reason God would condemn anyone to hell at the end of time is because his blood only propitiates his wrath against those who put their faith in Jesus. Oh, I haven't got time. It's all in, it's all in Romans 3. And therefore, you do not want to walk out into that world without making your peace with God. It doesn't mean that something's going to drop on your head today, but it does mean you're averting bombs every day of your life. It means you're, you're hop, jump and skipping who knows what? And here's the thing, you may be sitting there thinking, yeah, but bad things happen to Christians too. Yes, they do, because we live in a war zone. That's why we are collateral damage in a war zone. Those things are never intended for us. We are not experiencing any form of wrath from God. Nothing that ever happens to you is any expression of God's displeasure. Because he loves you, you're outside of his condemnation. Anything that ever occurs in your life is always, and I want you to know this, Christian, it's always from the fountain of God's love. You are loved. There is nothing that ever occurs in your life, good, bad, or ugly, that is from any other source than absolute love. Do you get that? Whatever you face, whatever you fear, whatever you experience, whatever occurs is from a source of love because the God who made you and loves you permits those things to enter your life in a war zone because he can do something beautiful with it. Because he is doing something beautiful with it. And you are the beautiful person that you are because of all that collateral damage that you suffer in this war zone. Hey, we're going to finish. I need to finish. I don't think I quite finished my sermon, but I think I've said enough if I can just get it back. I'll read this verse to you. Colossians 2.14. It's just a bit on there, uh, Greg. Having cancelled the written code with his regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The very first gospel is that. It's a picture of that verse in Genesis 14 and 15. It's the very first preview of the battle arena of the cross. And not just of the battle, but of the victory of the cross. You are forever the beneficiaries of God's love because of Genesis 3.15. God bless you. And go and be encouraged. And hey, in the new year we're going to do Jonah. Okay? Because here's one thing that we need to be passionate about. We are the object or the instruments of God for rescuing, for alerting and rescuing all those still under wrath. It's our task. And we're going to look at that in Jonah in the new year sometime. And if, if 2022, if, you, if there's a vision statement for Living Word Bible Church in 2022, it needs to be this. 
to go and make disciples of all nations. Not because it's fun, but because without that, they remain under the weight and wrath of God's judgment against sin. And you and I stand between that. You're Moses. Have you ever thought of yourself, like, oh, you haven't got a beard there, Sylvia. We can give you one if you want. But you, like Moses, stand between God's judgment on his people. Remember what he did? And God. Remember when God wanted to destroy them? What did Moses do? He pleaded with God. Let me ask you this question. I'm going to leave you with this. I'm going to shut up now. Have I spent any time this week standing between the objects of God's wrath, the world out there, and God, and pleaded with him, God, have mercy on them. Visit them with your salvation. Give me an opportunity. I stand. I stand between that person and you, God. I put my neck on the line. I plead for that person. I give myself to prayer for that person. I deny myself food for that person. I deny myself luxury for that person. And I'm going to plead for him. Look, God, I'm standing in between him and you. Have mercy on his soul. Visit him as you visited me. And bring him to faith too. We need to do that. We need to do that. It's the call of the gospel. My God. There's no point knowing the proto-evangelium <laughs> if it all sounds good. You know, I thought that was interesting, wasn't it? I think I'll go there again. But that's not the point of it, is it? The reason when we're preaching this is because it's got to stir us to action and to rescue some.